The problem is, you know, of course, with that approach is that, it, you know, everybody survives, but the flaming objects keep coming over the walls every few months. And that's the way we practice healthcare. What's the future of health? Join hosts, Dr. Stephanie Cuckoo, Gotham Gulati, and myself, Jordan Schlain, as we embark on a conversational journey with prominent speakers, experts, and innovators from the stages of the annual health conference. The goal is to explore the ideas that put humanity at the front and center of our evolving healthcare system. After all, health is about people. Hi, this is Jordan Schlain. On today's episode, we bring you Roy Smythe, where we discuss the future of proteomics and clinical medicine. Dr. Roy Smythe joined Somalogic in November 2018 as its chief executive officer. He was originally trained as a thoracic surgeon and physician scientist, and subsequently gained highly diverse experience and expertise across many areas of cutting-edge healthcare, technology, and translational medicine. He is a highly sought after lecturer and the author of more than 300 papers, abstracts, and essays in academic, literary, and humanities publications. So with that, let's begin the conversation. I have the privilege of sitting down with Roy Smythe, who I know well. He is a physician, he's an entrepreneur, he's a thinker. And for the purposes of our audience who may or may not know you uh, nearly as well as I, Roy, could you briefly tell us a little bit about you and what you're doing right now? Sure. Well, I think you've already said everything. Um, <laughs> okay, we're, we're done. Thank you, everybody. No. <laughs> so I am a physician originally. You know, I was one of those you know, professional student guys, you know, so I trained in general surgery, surgical oncology, thoracic surgery, did a post so, so the, the easy stuff. Yeah, and yeah. Post, well, I did postdoc in molecular therapeutics too, and so I was one of those you know sort of physician sciencey guys who did both clinical stuff and science stuff as well during my career. But uh, was always sort of interested in healthcare delivery, and I spent some time at Wharton as a medical student on this healthcare economics fellowship. And there were guys there in the mid '80s talking about how healthcare delivery was you know, not going down the right pathway and that, you know, healthcare financing wasn't appropriate and the structure of delivery wasn't appropriate. And I spent the next, you know, 20 so years of my career, you know, having fun, practicing medicine, you know, doing science, but then watching all the things that these guys at Wharton said uh, were going to happen, happen. And, and so about seven years ago, I shifted my career to the corporate side. I decided that that might be the best place for me to actually work on changing healthcare delivery rather than trying to change it from the inside out. And so... Was there a moment that made that decision happen or, or was it an accumulation of, of frustration? No. Or what, what was the thing that got you from, I'm a doctor and I'm doing clinical work to now I want to go into the into the realm of, of we'll say, business, the business of medicine, if for lack of a better term? Sure. No, it wasn't a moment. It was like a, a million micro moments. It was a million frustrations. It was, uh, you know, being a surgical oncologist at... MD Anderson, a great cancer center, and and having patients have a they gotten a diagnosis of cancer six months earlier, and then only just getting to see me, you know, six months later, and asking, you know, why why is it taking you so long to get here? And they're like, well, you know, I had trouble getting the oncologist appointment, and I had, you know, I couldn't get the CT scan approved by the insurance, and then I, you know, I had trouble getting the appointment to get the biopsy, and then you know, by the time all that stuff happened, six months have passed, and I'm like, well, now I've got a brain met. 
and I can't operate on a your A brain cancer. met, by the way, for those of you who don't know what a met is, it's short for metastasis, which means a tumor has traveled from its original location to a far-off distant location somewhere in the body, which generally has a much poorer prognosis for your long-term survival. Yeah, and so I was a lung cancer surgeon, and you know, and, and once the tumor is spread from your lung to someplace else, it's too late. And so that's just an example of, and I can give you 100,000 more. And even as a health system administrator, when I was a little further along in my career, there were all these systemic problems that I couldn't address. Um, I was sort of powerless to address as an individual, although I loved you know, taking care of patients and I loved my patients and that's the thing I miss the most. But So I decided that the best place for me to actually work on the project was at the interface of where the capital was being deployed and new products and services and innovations were being created. And so that's why I shifted my career seven years ago to the corporate side. So we met a while back when you were at Avia. That's correct. I think maybe, did we meet before then? But somewhere in that in that zone, and Avia was a was an innovation hub. That's right. So tell us what you learned there. I mean, here you have all these health systems that are trying to innovate. They are building innovation departments, but the truth is, a hospital that builds an innovation department has a hard time staffing that accordingly and knowing what's going on in the world. So there's this outsourced innovation group, and there you were. Well, this is part of the problem, uh, right? Part of the problem is that. Actually, health systems have a really difficult day job <laughs> to do, and that's taking care of the flood of patients, you know, pouring over the transom with acute disease. And it's overwhelming. It's an overwhelming challenge to deal with, and many of them struggle just to do that. And so how are you going to do that you know, while you're trying to understand in this period of time where digital technologies and biotechnology and everything else has just incredibly rapidly changed, literally in just in the last 20 years. How are you going to discern those changes and pick from this, you know, incredible array of opportunities, the best things to try or to use, you know, while you're dealing with the hordes of, of the acutely ill, you know, pouring over the, over the walls. And so that's, that's what Avia was doing, is they were, they were actually trying to structure a way for health systems to discern. But, but real quick, you said that uh, healthcare systems have a hard time with the flood of people coming over the transom, and I like the, I like the seafaring metaphor here. Why are they having a hard time? Why can't they do that in a way that, why is it a flood and, and why are people flying over the transom? Like, wh wh what is that about? I mean, what is the root cause of that, do you think? Well, the root cause of that is an inability to deal with the root cause of that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, I've got this, this uh, slide that I show in every, almost every talk that I give, and I think I showed it at your uh, offices recently when I was there speaking with your doctors about what we're up to at Somalogic. And that's this, I call it the triangle of disease, where at the very top, you've got the most acutely ill individuals that are easy to identify, you know, the ones that are costing the most money. And these are the ones that are pouring over the walls. Uh, so they're the ones you deal with. I call the way that we take care of patients now, I call it the medieval warfare problem. And the medieval warfare problem is that, you know, every few months in medieval times, the castle down the road would roll up to wage war on your castle and they would roll up with their siege engines and their catapults and they would throw the flaming objects over the wall. And you knew that what was coming because much like modern healthcare, medieval warfare didn't change over Pretty several, predictable. several hundred years. And so there were these bucket brigades that were created to deal with the flaming objects. And when the flaming objects come over the wall, uh, the bucket brigades would run up with the buckets of water and put the fires out so everything inside the castle wouldn't burn up. Uh, and people would survive, and so you could live to fight another day when they rolled up the next time with the siege engines and the catapults. The problem is, you know, of course, with that approach, 
is that it, you know everybody survives, but the flaming objects keep coming over the walls every few months. And that's the way we practice healthcare. So we imagine this triangle with the sickest people at the top, and then, and then as you go down from the top, you've got people that aren't quite as sick, that are known, that have a condition, that are at risk for you know, uh, what we call exacerbations or, you know, or worsening of their illness so that they'll end up at the top. And below that, you've got people that have preconditions that are going to move up at some point. Below that, you've got people that have predispositions that are at some point are going to develop that illness. And below that, you've got people that are healthy that don't want to move up at all. Well, then, you know, we're only practicing medicine at the top of the triangle. We're dealing with those that are, you know, pouring over the transom, but we're not dealing with the root cause. You know, we're not doing much of anything below the top of the triangle. So, so in your metaphor then, is the root cause of the root cause that um, it, diplomacy between the two castles would tear down the walls and build bridges and there would be no wars, right? Is, and then there's no more flaming people coming over the, over the uh, not flaming people, flame, flaming objects. Well, they did throw bodies too. <laughs> they usually bodies with a plague. Yeah. But, but, but with the root cause in that is that, that you know, let's, let's not have castles. Let's create a sharing economy, and I, and I say that vis-a-vis like transparency and sharing information, and right now in healthcare, we, we don't do that. Well, you know, I think that's one way. Another way would be to uh, go to where they build the catapults, you know, attack the catapults themselves. I mean, so, I mean, there's all sorts of ways to deal with this, but what obviously doesn't work is just waiting for the flaming objects to come over the wall. Right. Uh, and that's the way we practice medicine. And, and because we've done nothing to deal with the, you know, the endless supply of flaming objects, there's a huge number of them that just keep coming. And because of that, you know, we're sort of locked into this, this situation where it's all we can do to deal with the flaming objects coming over the wall. Right. Everybody's in the bucket brigade. Right. And what did you learn when you were done with Avia and you had studied all these hospitals and these flaming things? What, what was the thing that you took away with that? And then I want to talk about Somalogic here in sure. a moment. But, but what, were, what were the main learnings from that experience? Um, there were a lot. People that are staffing... I mean, I used to be one of these people. I mean, you know, people that are staffing health systems understand that this is the situation. It's not like they're oblivious to this. And so, and they certainly welcome the help of discernment. They certainly welcome this outsourcing of, you know, someone saying, hey, listen, we know this is a problem. Let us help you figure out how to deal with it. Let us help you sort of wade through the morass of good and bad, you know, brand new technologies to help you understand what might be helpful. But, you know, while that's good, you know, while, while that was, you know, a realization that, you know, they understood this, there's still a lot of impediments, right? I mean, just because something makes sense doesn't mean that it's going to be, you know, uh, used, adopted. Yeah. adopted. And because, you know, the payment structure, you know, just because you've got a perfect digital technology or in our case, a, you know, a, a potentially transformational biotechnology approach to diagnostics, which we'll talk about momentarily, doesn't mean that it's going to be rapidly adopted because, you know, the payment structure may not be aligned with it being rapidly adopted. Well, and just the inertia of, of what's been going on forever is yeah. hard to change. And then, and then, of course, you know, the practice culture may not be aligned with that. And then remember, you know, there's flaming objects coming over the wall, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. So let's go back to your pyramid. Obviously, the flaming objects are at the top of the pyramid. Uh, Somalogic is a... I'll let you describe that more than me, but it's a, it's a new digital, um, not digital, a new therapeutics company that focuses on the proteomics, right? And so for the people in our audience that don't aren't super sanguine to what proteomics is, and there's all these omics being uh, bandied about in healthcare and in society in general more and more lately, maybe you could just tell us what proteome is and, sure. and what proteomics is. Sure. And just a small point of correction. We're not a therapeutics company. I think the it's way to think, think about it is so we're, we're really... 
uh, diagnostics company. Maybe a better better terminology would be a health health information uh, company. So the, the way to think about the human proteome, maybe the simplest way to think about it is my youngest child is uh, is my nine year old son, and and when I took this job about a year ago you know, to run the company, he's like, Dad, what are proteins? What do proteins do? So I sat him down at the table. I said, his name is Green. I said, Green, look at Dad. He goes, okay. And I said, everything you're looking at is protein. And he's like, wow. <laughs> and then he didn't get it at all. <laughs> so, but, but, uh, I'm not, I'm not going to go to the, what about the... Yeah, what about water? But you don't fat, see, I was going to say fat. You don't but, see yeah. that. I mean, everything you're, you're not looking, fat, of but, course. But what you're looking at is, I mean, most of the things, actually, skin, tegument, nail, it's all protein. So, you know, genes actually, genes, they have one function, basically, and the, that function is to, is to make proteins, right? So genes... Where do genes live? Genes live in cells. Uh, they live in, the, you know, in the nucleus of cells, and genes are the template for everything that we are. So um, genes are part of DNA. Yeah, genes are, you know, in the DNA. Uh, so that, that's the plan. But what genes make are proteins. And so, and as it turns out, genes are the plan uh, in your DNA, the DNA, the genes that are in the DNA are your plan. But proteins are, are what you should consider as the structural and functional molecules of life. The way to think about proteomics versus genomics. So genomics you know, has sort of washed over the imagination of, I would say, people in general, and certainly of, of, of healthcare and genomics has made an, an impact on healthcare delivery, but the impact has been sort of narrow. It's been primarily focused on oncologic diseases or cancer. It's been helpful in helping physicians determine at times which drugs to give or, what, or which drugs not to give individuals. But it's not comprehensive. You know, the, the, the genome has not given us a lot of comprehensive guidance for clinical medical delivery, um, but it is useful. You know, at Semologic, we have 200 or so employees and, you know, 80 of them are scientists. So we understand the genome and we're not bashing the genome. It's useful and important. I'm glad I've got one and it, you've got one. <laughs> but the second thing is it's not contextual. So there's a reason why if you do a genomic test, uh, like you know, maybe one of the more popular ones where you swab your cheek, you don't swab your cheek repeatedly because you're going to get the same result. So your genome is the same at age 15 as it is at age 25, 35, and 55. Not true for proteins. Proteins are changing moment to moment, day to day, month to month, year to year. And so the thing about the proteome is that we've thought for a really long time that proteins rather than genes might give us a lot more information about health, wellness, and disease if we could just measure them, enough of them. So the proteome, just to be clear, is the sum of all the proteins in your body being created by the genome. That's correct. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm a little confused because you said that the genome doesn't change, but the proteome does change. But if the proteome is made from the genome, how can the proteome change? So it changes because proteins, uh, once they're made, they vary in a number of ways. So uh, proteins have uh, lifespans. So once they're made, uh, they stick around for a certain period of time and then they go away and they're replaced. They also have different structures. You know, the, the genes or the DNA is is simple structure. Doesn't Again, doesn't change during your lifetime. But proteins vary in their concentrations. Their, you know, some proteins, uh, you have very little of them in your body. Some proteins, you have tons. Like mm -hmm. hemoglobin, the stuff that's in your blood that carries iron, you've got tons of that. And some proteins, you don't have very much of it all. The structures are all different. The lifespans are all different. 
and actually your proteome, the proteins in your body, uh, it, it turns over or it reboots itself 40,000 times during your, life, during your lifetime. Hmm. So it, it would be useful to say that uh, we are a byproduct of both our genome and our environment. Our environment has some impact on our genome. So the genome may be fixed, but based on stimulation or, uh, from the environment, so if I punch you in the arm and give you a Charlie horse, well, your genome didn't change, but somehow the genes saw, uh-oh, trauma, inflammation, they will express a number of proteins in relation to that Charlie horse I gave you. And if I measured your proteome now, there may be a lot of Charlie horse proteins that's right. Um, versus yeah. before. So the proteins can change because of the environmental cue. So if you have cancer, your protein, your proteome will be different. If you, have, if you have, haven't slept well, your proteome may change, but exactly. your genome hasn't changed. That's right. And, and, I, and remember as well that your environment is not just, you know, whether or not you get punched in the arm. Your environment is also your age. <laughs> right. Um, you know, so your, your proteome uh, is different. And I'm sure you're realizing this at your current age. Yes, uh, I am. I am uh, 79. You're, you're, it's, uh, I'm getting up there. You're not 79 chronologically, but <laughs> you, you may be. Uh, you, you may be biologically. We can measure that actually. But, but uh, yeah. So t so tell me the utility of, of of these tests. So I'm a 52 year old person, and um, and I'd like to uh, understand a little bit about myself. And right now, I go to the doctor, and I get a complete blood panel. I get a chemistry panel. I look at a couple of markers. There's probably 200 things I can look at, and from those 200 things, I can impute a little bit about what's going on inside of me. Sure. Um, that's today. What's, what you're working on the future well, of that. Yes, so what we do is we measure, so the problem, let me just back up a little bit and say what we do differently. Uh, so the problem has been that if you can only measure tens or hundreds of proteins at a time, there's 20,000 basic protein structures in your body. So if you can only measure tens or hundreds at a time, then the likelihood of you getting some sort of pattern recognition about your body's current state or about the diseases you might have is low or maybe zero. Yeah. And, but that's been the problem. If you think about all those different, you know, every protein is a different shape, it's a different lifespan, it's in a different place in your body, it's in different concentrations. It's been super hard to measure enough of them at any one time to get a signal. Right. And, but that's what we figured out. And so we measure... 5,000 of the 20,000, 7,000 of the 20,000 next year, and that's five to seven times more than anybody else in the so world. So I'm guessing there's a lot of AI in here. So we got some AI too. So, you know, we measure that many, and then we use machine learning once we measure that many to understand what the patterns mean, to link the patterns of that, those thousands of proteins in this moment to something about you, something about your body or something about your disease or something to, to predict something about your body or disease. So I'll give you some examples. Please. So we, we have about 150 tests that, again, measure either things about your health, wellness, or disease states in our pipeline. We launched seven about a little over a month ago. I'll give you a couple of examples of those tests. One is a test that, based on protein expression patterns, will tell you what your risk of a heart attack or stroke is in the next four years. So in the next four years, am I at high risk, medium risk, or low risk? High risk would require that you go see your physician immediately. Low risk would mean that, you know, go on about your life. And basically, again, what that is, it's, it's, not a test that, it's not a test that comes back with a heart protein that tells us that something's wrong. It's a pattern, of, it's a pattern that we look at from the 5,000 proteins we measure. And that pattern, based on having measured 
that many proteins in thousands of other individuals, some with heart disease, some without heart disease, some with strokes, some without strokes, that we can predict that you're at high risk, medium risk, or low risk. We also have a test in that first seven that can tell you with 91% accuracy what your body weight is, what your body fat is in kilograms without seeing you or knowing what your actual weight is or what your sex is. Literally, you could hand me a tube of blood through a hole in a wall and I could tell you what your body weight in kilograms was with 91% accuracy because it's encoded in your proteome at that level of measurement by measuring that many proteins. In our pipeline, we have about 50% of the tests are medical, things like that cardiac test, and about 50% are things that tell you about your body what your level of aerobic fitness is. And so there's one, for example, if you've seen athletes, and some people have done this themselves, where you get on a treadmill and you wear a mask and you the, exercise this yourself. This is a VO2 max VO2 test? VO2 max test. You, you exercise yourself to exhaustion. We can do that with a tube of blood. We can tell you what your body fat is, what your visceral fat is, which is a measure that sometimes is correlated with an individual's risk for certain things, uh, all from a tube of blood. And then we can also measure the risk for diseases, like I said, cardiac disease. We have cancer tests and development and tests for things like Alzheimer's and development as well. So ultimately, if, if, we, if we know something about someone's proteome in the way you're talking about it, it can give us a roadmap of how to not go into the ditch in the future. Or it can give us some roadmap of interventions we can do now or not. But it, it basically gives you some sense of where you are with where you should be. And then it gives you some, I mean, there's got to be something actionable to this, right? That's right. Yeah. And some of these things are things that a clinician could get at in other ways, mm -hmm. right? So for example... The cardiac test that I just mentioned, there's a risk stratification that physicians can do that can get you pretty much the same result, but that requires that a patient sees a physician that knows how to do the risk stratification, that the does physician... Does the blood pressure, does the all the different... Yeah. physician and the patient are both compliant. And, you know, and, and the reality is, is that, you know, if you take 100 people in the general population that are at risk for an, a heart attack or stroke in the next four years, it's only a small percentage of those individuals that are gonna, going to have done that. And so... The way to think about these tests moving forward in the future is that if you're just drawing, you know, 120 microliters of blood, and by the way, you know, right now we just launched those seven tests, but once we have 200 tests on the, on the platform, we'll be able to do all 200 tests if you want them from that one blood specimen. It's just an algorithm, you know, once, once, we, once we run the assay. So, so this sounds like it, I mean, we've been hearing a lot in medicine about these technologies that are going to revolutionize and change the game. We've been hearing it for... I mean, at least I've been hearing it in my practice. No, we both Pro have. Yeah, but, but for probably the last 10 to 12 years. I think prior to that, there was no major game changers like really on the horizon. I mean, we still haven't cured cancer. There's all these things that we still really haven't done. That's right. Um, but this <clears throat> sounds like with a little drop of blood, we could not have to do a treadmill test. We could not have to... I mean, all these other devices that measure stuff that create so much resistance in the circuit to get something done. That's right. So th this actually brings all this stuff back to like a point of care risk assessment and analysis of who you are right now and what the future risks are. So that, that sounds like a pretty big game changer for, for, for physicians who, and for the healthcare system, that have to do all these other hoops to jump through. We think it could be. Again, the way we think about these tests is that they sort of fall into one of four categories. They could, they could potentially be much more convenient, right, than having to do all those things. Yep. Uh, they could certainly be, in some cases, much less invasive. So, for example, we've got a test that can replace a liver biopsy to diagnose fatty liver. Uh, that test will be out in the next few months. Uh, they could be less expensive, right? Uh, again, drawing a tube of blood and screening you for 10 cancers at once would be less expensive than having to do all the screening tests for those 10 cancers. We have that in development. Or they could be simply tests that have never existed before. And we've got some of those in, in, in development too, where there is no 
diagnostic modality that we know of currently that could give you the answer to the question that's being asked. That's one way to think about them. I'll tell you another way to think about them that I think is compelling myself personally, and that is, so there are all these use cases that we just have been talking about over the last few seconds here in the medically developed world, but what about the medically developing world? I mean, what about places in the world where there is no healthcare delivery whatsoever? This morning when I gave my talk, I, I, the last slide I showed was, a, was an image of a United Nations truck, and I said, you know, what about uh, you know, five years from now where a UN truck drives into a sub-Saharan African village where there is no healthcare delivery at all, and you line up the 200 people that live there and each of them gets a blood draw, and then you take the blood specimens back to the central facility and you run the assay, and you run 80 tests on all 200 individuals, including the most prevalent infectious diseases in that region, including a test for early maternal complications, you know, pregnancy. We've got that test actually in development with the Gates Foundation right now because they have, have a specific interest in this in, in the medically developing world. You know, screen for all adult cancers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You run that and then you drive the truck back in a few months later and deliver whatever care is necessary, you know, in a way that's probably affordable. And how about comparing that to the care that those people are getting now, which is nothing. Right. Certainly you're not going to put a CT scanner uh, you know, in an ultrasound machine, uh, in a pathology lab, in a bus, and take it into that village. I mean, you could, uh, but there's not enough money in the world to do that right now. Or certainly there probably is enough money in the world, but it's not likely to be spent that way. And so we think this has applications uh, beyond, you know, what you and I would contemplate to potentially be transformational in the medically developed world and other places as well. So this is, this is really the tip of the spear of the new diagnostic wave. I mean, there's liquid biopsies, there's breath biopsies, there's all these things that we're hearing about. But you've spent, this company spent 20 years, raised $600 million, and has really dug into some real science to prove some real things. So I'm really excited about what, what this may tell us in the future. And for full disclosure, I'm really interested in my clinics to start using this technology to put it into real practice. So as we come to a close, we have a couple of rapid-fire questions for you. So I just, I'm going to ask you a question and then tell me the first word that comes to your mind. Cool. What is the first word that comes to your mind when I say the word health? Personal. Well done. Well played. Um, <laughs> yes, that is, it is personal, isn't it? I think a lot of people at this conference look at health as a business, and we all forget that we are just health yeah. walking around. Um, okay, and who is the person that most inspires you in thinking about the future of healthcare? That's a great question. I'd have to say the person who most inspires me to think about the future of healthcare is my mom, who died when I was 17. Mm, sorry to hear that. Well, she's the reason I, I became interested in medicine in the first place. She was a cancer patient when I was a child. But, uh, you know, that was my first exposure to just how personal healthcare is. And, you know, growing up in a, in a home with a sick parent, and actually my dad died a year later of a, of a serious illness as well when I was 18. You know, when you've lived it, you understand that healthcare is personal and a lack of health is impactful mm -hmm. on a family. And so I would have to say it was my mom that, that probably inspires me the most to think about the future of healthcare delivery and, 
and changing it such that, you know, maybe other other six and seven-year-olds don't have to live live through that. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, on a separate kind of orthogonal note to that, I I see some patients out there and they want a prescription for this and they want a prescription for that or they don't do what they're supposed to do. And I just, I just want to write a prescription for a mom for them. (laughs) And and that might be the solution. Like they they don't, you know, their mom doesn't exist and they need need a mom in their life. Certainly social support. uh, For sure. And then the final question is, is what is your favorite book? What, What book has inspired you what would you recommend our listeners listen to a uh, read that inspired you? Well, I'd, I'd say the book that I read recently that I thought was pretty compelling was uh, Yuval Harari *Sapien*. Mm-hmm. I mean, he talks a lot about you know how humans, you know, certainly how how we developed culturally over the millennia, and uh, I'm not as big of a fan of his more recent books. They're good, uh, they're very good, but this book I think explains a lot about how we behave culturally and how we behave socially. I just found it to be, be inspiring and predictive of a lot of, a lot of the ways in which we, uh, we, we go on about our lives. Another book I read a while back, which I think is fascinating, is a book called A Shop Class as Soul Craft. That's one not many people know about. It's by a guy named Matthew Crawford, hmm. which I would highly suggest to, to people. And in the final minute, <clears throat> give us a little nugget about what that's about. That sounds interesting. That's a book about the value of work mm. and about the value of work in a society that's increasingly information-based, mm. about the value of people still doing things with their hands. Maybe it's because I'm a surgeon originally. Yeah. I value but it's interesting relatively compelling book. It's also, I think, uh, cogent if you've recently tried to have someone come fix a pipe at your house. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much, Roy Smythe, the CEO of Soma Logic, and my good friend. And uh, we look forward to more exciting things from your company and yourself. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Appreciate it. You bet. Bye. Hi again. It's me, Jordan Schlain. If you're still listening, I'm hoping it's because you enjoyed this conversation. I certainly did. It's super easy to get notified of future episodes. Simply subscribe to Health Matters. That's H-L-T-H Matters on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget to leave us a review. See you next time.